Chapter 6. Heal Your Finances. To those learning on the sustaining infinite, today is big with blessings. It's a quote by Mary Baker Eddy, founder of Christian Science. I awoke one morning, a few months after I began practicing the purification practices of the first rules for health, with a sense of peacefulness, vibrant energy. I could practically feel the blood flowing through my veins. I smiled as I washed my face and hands and moved gently into my morning routine. I prepared a cup of steaming ginger tea, sat in my prayer corner to watch the sunrise, and a journal, pray, and meditate. I then did 10 minutes of yoga, followed by a 10-minute walk on the forest path a few feet from our house. I breathed deep of the clean pine-sweetened morning air. As I was preparing a breakfast of multi-grain toast, yogurt, and fruit, I realized how deeply alert I felt. It was like walking up. It was like waking up after a long sleep, troubled by dreams of aimless, anxious running through chaotic streets in a strange city, then being flooded by relief at being safe at home in my own bed. I was at home in my body for the first time in years. That day, I felt ready to go deeper into the gentle process of reflecting on how I had lost control of my time and my energy. And I began to think about something that until then I had not had the strength to face, money. I opened a credit card bill and groaned. That week, with the help of my gentle inner observer, I took a long look at the habits that seemed linked to my overdone life. Do finances drain you or sustain you? Just as I had exhibited a starve and binge pattern in my eating, I noticed a similar pattern in my relationship to money. I realized I needed to purify myself of this unsustainable habit as well. I had to admit that I was carrying what felt to me like a huge load on my back of accumulated personal and business debt, like a bag of boulders weighing me down. What seemed perfectly natural according to the world, spending beyond my means by using credit cards, for example, had enormous impact on my levels of fatigue and stress. I had developed a pattern of living simply and frugally for months, and then suddenly having a shopping binge or offering to pay for a vacation for our children. This would happen roughly once a year, just enough to keep me in the red on an ongoing basis. My discomfort was proportionate to the level I owed on my line of credit which my banker happily continued to extend. I never intended to get into this predicament. It happened as a result of some bad business decisions and some unexpected losses, 
Yet one of the threads running through it was a belligerent denial and naive belief that somehow it would pass without having a plan for how I would responsibly bring it about. As I reflected on this repeating pattern, breathing deeply to soothe the anxiety rising in my chest, I recognized that anger was at the heart of this pattern. Anger rising from working too hard for too little. I didn't deserve it. Didn't I deserve it? I had to swallow hard when I thought about the six-figure advance I had received for my first two books, which frightened me so much I had turned most of it over to a well-meaning group of business people to expand our project. The money was gone within a year and nothing was to show for it. This was the same year I came down with post-polio. I realized that the stress from this mistake was probably one of the factors that made the onset so severe. I had a very hard time forgiving myself for seeing this windfall as a terrifying responsibility with which I thought I had to expand our project rather than a gift of grace allowing me to relax. If only I had been thankful instead of fearful. Also, for two years in a row, when we had worked in developing countries, they were unable to pay us after we had completed projects of several weeks. We ended up paying our own airfare and hotel bills as well. We do a good bit of pro bono work each year, but this time it was unintentional, and we did not have the reserves for such an unexpected loss. Combined with my occasional fits of indulgence, the debt load had grown out of proportion to our income. So much for moderation and grace. It horrified me to think of the many people I knew who had declared bankruptcy. I did not want to go there. Later that week, I had a moment of startling clarity as a crimson dawn filled the sky. I had been journaling my thoughts each day, seeking to understand what kept me stuck in this pattern and what virtues were involved. I knew that justice was one of them and that I needed to set clearer boundaries with our clients. I also recognized that by my episodic overspending, I was fundamentally saying to God, you're not giving me enough. It was as if my trust in God was fragmented and my issues about money were cordoned off in a place where I felt alone and abandoned. That old familiar song. I recognized that I had slipped into what Jesuit Donald Shell calls functional atheism. Where was my trusting God's grace to prove, provide what I needed? The angry, defiant adolescent in me who grabbed, grabs her credit card and elbows her way past reason into a shop needed to take a step back and repent, rethink this behavior in the light of grace. 
it had destroyed my peace for far too long. As I prayed for understanding, two virtues came, contentment and thankfulness. I experienced them as strong, gentle spirits presenting me with a gift to hold in each hand. I had a deep sense that they truly had the power to lift me out of my lifelong cycle of over-restraint followed by overspending. Somehow I would find a way to break the cycle. As I finished my reflections that day, I recorded in my prayer journal my commitment to dissolve debt, create sustainable abundance, and practice contentment with what God provides. Ending with an affirmation, I am free and clear. I was excited and hopeful as I rose from my prayer chair. I immediately walked into my office and wrote free and clear on a colorful label and placed it on the bottom of my computer monitor. Now it literally frames whatever I do. I now practice responsible abundance. Spend sustainably. One aspect of energy conservation is to use all of our resources sustainably, not only our time and energy, but also our money. Being unclear about expenses, running up debts, and not keeping financial papers in order are major energy drains that deplete our health. In the Feng Shui concepts of energy conservation, financial healing is essential. Clearing up our finances and living by a budget with firm boundaries around spending restores energy on a deep level. Taking steps to heal our financial state is a spiritual act of responsibility, enabling us to respond ably and providing a sweet, righteous sense of well-being. In the United States, one of the richest countries in the world, financial sustainability is elusive. Overspending is rampant. In 2002, both corporate and personal bankruptcies smashed all previous records. In the corporate world, 186 public companies with a staggering $368 billion in assets filed for bankruptcy in 2002, according to the tracking service, bankruptcydata.com. The New England Economic Review stated in July 2000 that credit card borrowing, delinquency, and personal bankruptcy were then at an all-time high. Although spending beyond our means is standard for millions of us, it is neither a financially nor a spiritually healthy way to live. It is anything but a lifestyle of grace. According to Suze Orman, author of The Laws of Money, The Lessons of Life, the average American has $8,000 in credit card debt with a typical interest rate of 18%. If they paid only the minimum payment each month, it would take 54 years to pay off and cost $23,000 in interest payments alone. When we chronically overextend financially, 
it drains us rather than sustains us. I find it ironic that we call our credit cards by the opposite of what they are. They are debit cards. The more we use them, the greater our debt. We don't really have the money in our credit limit. And if we are making minimum payments, we pay for what we buy twice or several times over. In the nine steps to financial freedom, which I found profoundly helpful, Suze Orman says, we have one of, Suze Orman says, we have one or both of two choices when we find ourselves in a financial fix. Increase our income and or decrease our spending. It sounds simple, but it is a radical change for many of us. When we compulsively overspend, we are acting from dissatisfaction and resentment. We are saying, my life is not enough. I am not enough. God is not giving me enough. We are squandering our true wealth, which is a sense of contentment with what we have. A major part of this comes, I believe, from allowing the current materialistic culture of excess to dictate how we measure our worth. We not only need to take practical steps to disrupt this illusion about what matters, we need to change our inner lives at the same time. I sought the wisdom of a good financial advisor to help me develop a plan for financial sustainability. After a long walk, sorry, after a long talk with my banker, I obtained a consolidated low interest loan. I also knew that unless I changed my inner attitude, unless a shift occurred within my spirit, the cycle could repeat itself endlessly. I found three practices very helpful in healing my inner financial pain. Number one, reevaluating my sense of wealth and worth. Number two, practicing thankfulness every day. And number three, creating a pace of grace in my spending. Reevaluate your wealth and worth. Money is not just money, it is meaning. In Western culture, to have too little is a source of shame and creates a sense of failure and literal worthlessness. Having a great deal of money or material goods signifies that someone has made it. Ambiguous, I don't know if that's the right word, U-B-I-Q-U-I-T-O-U-S. Ambiguous advertisements barrage us with messages about the things we need to live well. Before they can read, our children are in danger of becoming compulsive consumers. I recall a friend whose three-year-old threw a tantrum and refused to go to nursery unless she was wearing her alligator shirt, replete with the Izod emblem. 
Our culture tells us that success is defined by fame and wealth. People of my generation cut our teeth on rags to riches stories, as well as stories of the men flinging themselves out of windows on Wall Street the day the Great Depression started. Inner city kids have been murdered in recent years for a pair of Nike sneakers. What is wealth, really? What are your true valuables? Even obscene amounts of money do not guarantee financial sustainability. Despite salaries in the millions, many entertainers and sports stars spend so excessively that they go bankrupt. I also know people with relatively low incomes who live very well in their frugality. One of my relatives, whose income is at the U.S. poverty level, always seems to have enough saved to loan to family members. When it is time to buy a car, she has saved the money needed for the down payment and has studied consumer reports to make sure she's getting the most for her money. She has a beautiful wardrobe lined up neatly in her walk-in closet courtesy of the Sears catalog, lives in a lovely home, and always has what she needs. We always joke that she does poverty well. Her line is, if I'm so smart, how come I'm not rich? You are, I always say. I recently visited a friend of mine in the multi-million dollar house she had she and her husband built when they retired. As she and I walked into the garage to drive to the store, I looked at their Lexus and late model SUV and said to my friend, do you realize that you and your husband are among the wealthiest people in the world? Probably the top 10%. She looked genuinely puzzled and answered, no, not really. My friend's money had not bought her happiness. I knew, too, that she treasured our friendship, which has lasted since the first day of high school, as one of the most precious things in her life, as do I. I, look, I took a good look at my life and revised my picture of my own wealth. I began to see what a wealthy woman I am. A friend said to me, Linda, I know you don't have much money now, but you live the way people wish they could if they had money. As I focused on the wealth I do have, I realized it was a simple thing, really, to allow contentment and gratitude to flood the dry areas of my soul that seemed linked to a sense of scarcity in the areas of money and love. It was like turning my face up and feeling a warm summer, summer rain start to fall. Be thankful for what you have. One of the things that helped me to set my financial house in order was to practice gratitude for what I value in my life, beginning with my family and friends, then contemplatively looking at the other things in my life for which I am thankful and literally counting my blessings.
the laughter I share with my grandchildren on our adventurous walks, the achingly beautiful view of ocean and mountains from our island home, the fact that I am a published author, a fact that still astonishes me when I walk into a bookstore and see my books on the shelf, the people whose lives I have been privileged to touch, the amazing resilience of my body, the opportunity to travel the world, and the intimate connection my husband and I have with people of many cultures. I learned much about the virtues of thankfulness and contentment from the women in a Fijian village. I remember my surprise at the response of a friend when I enthusiastically showed her my photos. She was looking at a picture of me standing with some of the villagers outside a small tin-roofed house. We were all smiling with joy. Oh, those poor people, she said. What do you mean? I asked. Look at their clothes and that house. I laughed and told her that these villagers were in fact quite wealthy. They owned their land, they had no mortgage payments, and they all needed and had all they needed in abundance. They thought that I was poor. Why? she asked. I told her how the village had given me a uh, meki, which is a full Fijian welcome with traditional dances, gifts, a kava ceremony, and opportunity to present the Virtues Project and response speeches by the elders, followed by a lavish banquet. After the formal ceremony, the women led me to a house with a long woven mat spread on the floor. They had placed ample dishes of food along the full length of the mat, and we all sat around the food together and feasted. Every dish was more delicious than the last. Coconut wrapped in edible leaves, papaya, which they call pawpaw, ladyfinger bananas sweeter than any I had ever tasted, plates piled with taro, fresh fish in coconut cream and sweet golden pineapple for dessert. As I sat with the women, we talked and laughed. Each time I tasted a new dish, I told them how delicious it was. I said, now that I've tasted this delicious food that you have right here in your own garden, I'll have to live here now. An elder with very few teeth in her mouth put her head back and roared with laughter. Then she became serious and asked me, don't you have pineapple in your garden? No, auntie, I have to buy pineapple flown to my land from another country. She shook her head sadly. Do you have bananas in your garden? No, auntie, I have to buy them from flown in from South America. They asked me about each dish and shook their heads in disbelief at my poverty. Then they looked at each other and seriously invited me to move to their village. To me, these are wealthy people. They need few clothes, have no heating bills. It is always hot there and can swim in the Pacific at any time they wish. They have abundant leisure time. 
They call the coconut tree the tree of life, and they use every part of it. The roots for medicine, the fronds for shade, weaving of mats, roof material and baskets, the coconuts for food and for drink, and they use the oil on their bodies. They have plenty of food and everything they eat is grown in their own gardens, harvested from the sea or raised in their local farms. They think of themselves as wealthy for good reason. Keep a pace of grace in your spending. One of the simple ways I found to eliminate the tension that would develop from the starve and binge pattern over restraint leading to overspending was finding ways to nurture myself better, to practice generosity in simple, moderate ways. This approach miraculously prevents discontent. I think of it as responsible abundance. I now budget for small, regular indulgences that give me great pleasure rather than building up the sense of deprivation as I used to. I give myself gifts of love and appreciation, such as buying a pair of $10 handcrafted earrings at an open-air market, attending a concert, having a massage, having a picnic beside a lake or river, going to a thrift stop, and finding a huge knee-length sweater to wrap around me in winter. I now have a practice of giving myself small gifts from nature to celebrate meeting a goal. When I completed the manuscript for A Pace of Grace, I went for a walk on a nearby beach and found a shell that looked like an angel's wing. Its shape was a perfect expression of grace to me. It now adorns my prayer table. My husband prepared a special candlelight dinner at home, which I appreciated far more than spending on a lavish dinner. These two ways of celebrating gave me a sweet, sustainable sense of satisfaction with no regrets. When you have little money, you can choose to think of yourself as poor or steward it wisely and think of yourself as blessed. The Virtue of Thankfulness I have learned to be content with whatever I have. Philippians number four. Thankfulness is being grateful for what we have. It is an attitude of gratitude for learning, loving, and being. It is also being thankful for the little things that happen around us and within us every day. It is an openness and willingness to receive each of God's bounties. To be thankful is to have a sense of wonder about the beauty of this world and to welcome all of life as a gift. Thankfulness is a path to contentment. The signs of success. I am practicing thankfulness when I have an attitude of gratitude, show appreciation for what others do for me, see the difficulties of my life as opportunities to learn, am receptive to gifts, appreciate what I have instead of envying others, count my blessings every day.
and the affirmation is, I am thankful for the many gifts within me and around me today. I celebrate each moment by opening myself to beauty and to learning. I expect the best. Practice financial justice in your family. I'd like to share one last method that I feel is very helpful in alleviating the shame-based impulsive spending that comes from a sense of deprivation. Couples can increase the sense of grace in the relationship by practicing financial justice, particularly if one of them is in, is the primary homemaker and the other is seen as the breadwinner. Breadmaker, breadwinner, what's the difference? Both contribute to the capital of the family. Those who work in the home should be compensated by the family income for the services they render. Think of it. What would it cost to pay for a nanny, a cook, a chauffeur, or a cleaner? This person should receive a salary that both partners agree is a reasonable amount and be paid regularly and predictably. No one should ever be demeaned by having to go to a spouse for a handout. No matter how much or how little you are bringing in as a family, every person should have some personal spending money to use any way he or she sees fit. Even a very modest portion of the family income is better than having to go to another adult to ask for money. Even if the primary provider is out of work, develop an informal agreement that a small amount of money will be made for him to spend freely. It's a question of dignity. If you are single, the same principle holds true. Give yourself freedom within boundaries to spend something without having to account for it. When my husband Dan and I were newly married, we had some financial challenges after relocating. Dan proposed that whoever got a job first, the other receive part of that salary. First, for the work done inside the home, and second, for a portion to be allocated to personal spending. This way, neither of us would feel beholden to go to the other to beg for money. We developed a percentage policy that to this day has saved us from much potential conflict. It is the rule of yours, mine, and ours. We pool a certain amount of what each of us earns into a joint account for mortgage, insurance, groceries, and other family expenses, maintaining the freedom to spend or save the rest as each of us chooses to. Each of us has a responsibility for our own expenditures, and I know this practice has saved us from an enormous amount of potential conflict. Teach your children to spend wisely. In an age when materialism constantly threatens our children's value system, we must teach them to spend wisely. A successful executive in India whom I met on my travels told me how he sets positive financial boundaries with his children. He never once said money doesn't grow on trees. 
When his children ask for something they want to buy, such as the latest brand name sneakers, he doesn't say, you can't have the Gucci shoes, they're too expensive, or we can't afford it. That makes it sound like we're poor, or that I don't care about them, or that I'm cheap. Rather, I say, why buy a $100 pair of shoes when you can get a $50 pair now and another $50 pair in three months? Then you'll have two pairs. Ellen, another parent who has clear boundaries, says our clothing budget is $300 a month. It's up to you whether you want to use most of it on those shoes or get another pair more reasonably priced plus a pair of pants. My father used to say, I'll buy you anything you need, anything you want. We have to talk about it. I also believe children ought to do chores for free. They are full members of the family and need to share the responsibility for the family home. Allowance should be given freely rather than a payment for chores. Gratitude the anti-anxiety remedy. In these troubled days, when the world no longer feels safe and when the economy is so uncertain, we have a special challenge to keep anxiety from overshadowing our lives. One of the ways to get on with our lives is through remembering to practice thankfulness throughout the day. It compels us to notice the beauty in small things and to slow down into awareness of the gifts each day brings. I believe that when we are thankful, we create a magnetic attraction for abundance. When we are fearful, we attract further stress. The practice of gratitude is one of the best remedies to help us replace fear with trust. It is a matter of focus. In managing my health, I find it invariably uplifting to practice gratitude every day. When I was still suffering with fatigue, I would appreciate things like the softness of the couch, the fact that I was warm and dry inside on a cold rainy day, or that I had a good book to read, a hot supper, a friendly voice on the phone. Now, I'm thankful I'm thankful every day for the abundance of fatigue, sorry. Now I'm thankful every day for the absence of fatigue and the energy I have learned to sustain through my pace of grace. The practice of gratitude keeps a tender smile on your face, sustains your peace throughout the day and serves as a magnetic source of peace for others. Others will literally be drawn to your peaceful presence. Be content with what you have. Rejoice in the way things are. When you realize there is nothing lacking, the whole world belongs to you. Lao Tzu, Chinese mystic founder of Taoism. 6042531 BCE Exercise Grace Count Your Blessings
The following exercise will help you to initiate gratitude as a daily practice. Before you begin this practice, spend a normal day just noticing, without judgment, how many times you think a negative thought, focus on what is lacking, make a critical comment, curse what's happening, or express irritability and impatience. Just notice. Record in your journal at the end of the day what you observed, how you felt, and how your energy was affected. Spend the next few days practicing gratitude. Begin with your journal. Number one, begin the day by reflecting on at least three things for which you are thankful. Dwell on each for a moment and let yourself imagine and appreciate each of them. Number two, ask yourself, what will make this day an enjoyable day of grace? Decide on how you want to structure the day or some action you can take to make it enjoyable. Number three, before you go to bed, journal three things for which you are grateful today. Number four, once each hour, notice something that you're thankful for. The speed of your computer, the sandwich in your hand, the friend by your side, a laugh with a colleague, the sweet smell of your child after a bath. Number five, speak words of appreciation and encouragement. Use the language of virtues to acknowledge the kindness or helpfulness, or courage of a child, a friend, an employee, a co-worker, or yourself. Number six, record in your journal how these gratitude practices affected your emotions and your energy. Summary of chapter six, Heal Your Finances. Honestly, Assess your financial habits. Do they drain you or sustain you? Overspending is a sign of discontent with what God provides. It is a statement that you are not enough and your life is not enough. Clear up your finances. Make more money and or spend less. Reevaluate and revise your picture of your true wealth. What are the real valuables in your life? Practice thankfulness every day. Count your blessings. Establish a pace of grace in your spending. Practice responsible abundance. It will help you eliminate erratic, unconscious habits that lead to debt. Be generous to yourself. Indulge in small, lovely gifts. Practice financial justice. Establish a salary for the partner who works at home. Whatever you have, provide personal freedom to each person to spend a small percentage as they see fit. The yours, mine, and ours accounting approach can prevent conflict. Daily gratitude helps to heal anxiety. 
The next chapter focuses on how to sustain gratitude and develop a whole new possibility for abundance by transforming the space around you.